occasionally there are conversations that captivate you because of the unique way that an individual has faced a challenge and the choices that they've made off the back of that challenge. This conversation was one of those. My name is Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness and the mess of life. Ben Bravery, what a great name, (laughs) is on a mission to open up a conversation, a conversation between patients and doctors, between those experiencing illness and the system that has been set up to take care of the ill, but sometimes leaves them feeling lost and vulnerable. Originally a zoologist and science communicator at the age of 28, with his Beijing-based science communications business doing well and a new relationship blossoming, Ben worked from a colonoscopy to be told that he had stage 3 colon cancer. What's most fascinating about this conversation is not necessarily Ben's cancer diagnosis, but what Ben's scientific way of viewing the world led him to do next. In 2018, Ben became a doctor and is currently committed to advocating for change in Australia's healthcare system. This conversation is dynamic in both perspectives of the patient, what Ben felt like through his experience, and also understanding what it is like to be working long hours for doctors and nurses, those in the healthcare system. Ben is driven by this experience on both sides. He's a patient turned doctor and he gives a no holes barred account of how he overcame the trauma of his illness to study medicine and shares what he believes student doctors, doctors, patients and their families need to do to ensure that the medical system puts the patient at the very heart of the healthcare every single day. Please enjoy this conversation with the patient doctor, Ben Bravery. Ben, it's such a delight to be connecting with you today and to be diving into your story. Thank you. Great to be here. I'd love to start by asking you a little bit of your background. So you are a trained zoologist. Tell me a little bit about what was it that got you interested in and and how did you get into zoology? Tell me a little bit about your backstory first, where you grew up and uh, what your childhood was like that led you to being a zoologist. Uh, Okay, so it starts in Queensland, where I'm from. I was born in Southport on the Gold Coast in the 80s to a single mum. And she had thought throughout the pregnancy that she probably wasn't going to keep me. And so she had completed most of the paperwork to put me up for adoption, thinking that other people would be able to give me the life that she wanted me to have. She wasn't with my father for other complicated reasons. And she was 18 and she had this idea having grown up in a um, reasonably Catholic household and having had some education at the hands of nuns that she needed a nuclear family and anything outside of that was um, sin and unhealthy for the child. I think that's what mostly drove her thinking. And so I was born and I was whisked away. And in those days, they separated the baby from the mother very quickly because I think they knew that any connection or bonding would um, contaminate that, that, dis- that decision. So I was whisked away and mum was mom moved up to the gynecology ward, at least away from the other new mums holding their babies. And a sympathetic nurse was kind of listening to mum one day and decided that night at the end of her shift, she'd sneak her up to the nursery. They went, it was all very um, clandestine. They went out the fire escape. (laughs) I love it. They had to avoid (laughs) the matron who was enforcing these rules. And uh, I think it was the second day I was after of my birth, she had held me um, and she kind of cried a lot and what didn't want to let me go. But the nurse explained that she had to. So she went, back and then the next night it was repeated and so by now we're about day four and uh, the state the government is coming to pick me up and the morning that they're due to come she decides that she's going to keep me so she calls my grandparents her parents and despite them being reasonably catholic they've forgiven her Uh, and they on their way to the hospital and the 
the um, you know social services are on the way to the hospital. Social services make it first, um, and they start banging on my mum's door. And the sympathetic nurse happened to be on that day, and she's kind of got it barred. And she's saying through the door, she she's keeping the baby. He's, he's, he's not for you today. Um, and they're quite insistent because they know that, you know, mum made the decision in one emotional state and now she's in a very different emotional state. I get why, but they're a bit forceful. Mum and the nurse were a bit louder and eventually they back down. My grandparents arrive and I'm in the family. So it's quite an interesting start. Um, what an mom, amazing four days. What yeah, an incredible yeah. story. Quite really interesting. So I'm kind of, I spend most of that time, you know, my own in the nursery. Mum tells me that the nurses decorated it and they made it, you know, pleasant and fun. But I was still effectively alone drinking formula out of bottles. And I had, so at, at day four, mum having made this decision, there's an interesting problem is that I don't own anything. And she hasn't bought anything. <laughs> so if you're planning to give away your your baby for, you know, what she at the time were good reasons for her, she was placed with a new problem. So my grandfather rushes out the nearest Kmart, I think it was back then, and buys every onesie he can back to the hospital to put me in something to take me home. So it was an interesting, it was a dramatic start, but it was a start surrounded by love. And obviously, mum having made that decision and then changing her mind, there's a real closeness there that, you know, you can't replicate under other circumstances. It was, I think choosing to keep me felt like the real choice. You know, that was the real choice she made. She still says, I'm 40. She still says it's the most important decision she ever made. Um, Just picturing the 18-year-old in that and the... The decision you face with and and just the circumstances yeah. that you describe around that it's really powerful it is it's really tough um she did an amazing thing and she wanted me you know that that idea of wanting a different life carried over it and i think she realized she could do that you know she didn't have to outsource that to another family yeah so we moved a little bit further north and i grew up kind of effectively what is now called Logan, but it's been differently called the Gold Coast or Northern Gold Coast, Southern Brisbane. It's Logan. It's halfway between the Brisbane, you know, the city and the Gold Coast. It's kind of, it's claim to fame as, you know, it's on the Pacific Highway, which connects these two centres of activity. And, you know, interestingly- And in the 80s, wasn't it the Hyperdome was the largest shopping, like I remember that. Yeah, the, the Hyperdome was is the largest single-storey mall in the Southern Hemisphere. Was I knew claim. it had something. <laughs> and it, very interestingly, we, for a time, my mum obviously struggled as a single mother. And my sister, I, had a, I have a sister who's two years younger. For a time, we lived in a caravan park opposite the highway next to the Hyperdome. So it's quite an interesting contrast. And yeah, so we, you know, you could either go north to the city and do things, or you could go south to the coast and do things. It's a very working class area. Grew up in a really working class family. I never had anything to do with my father's side, so it was all maternal. Uh, Mum's one of four girls. My aunts were around all the time. My grandparents were very hands-on. Yeah, I grew up in kind of this really focused family with a really good work ethic, but they didn't always value education. So, you know, they, they had to choose really, do you get ahead by getting a job and working really hard as soon as you can, or do you delay that, go and study and learn something else? And so, um, you know, they, they come from a really strong work background, very blue collar. You know, my, my auntie ran the local RACQ office. Um, my, my two aunts managed KFCs. Uh, my grandfather was a draftsman with his own business. My nana did daycare. Um, all very practical stuff, um, but they all worked extremely hard, including my mother, um, who sometimes, you know, would have three jobs to keep us going. This was before males had to pay child support. Mm. So mum mum did it on her own. And, you know, sometimes she would forgo meals if we didn't have enough money that week. Um, sometimes she'd need to borrow from our piggy banks to pay bills. It's a far cry from where we are now but a really important part of who we are. How much of that, where you talk about that level of work ethic, do whatever it takes, and obviously a really strong kind of connection and family, how much of that is, I guess, part of who you are and how you turn up to the work that you do? 
I think it's I think it's really important. First of all, it it grounds you, doesn't it, in a way that other other experiences may not. You, um, it's I don't like to phrase the Aussie battler, <laughs> but you know that's that when politicians use that term, they're talking about my extended family. Mm. Um, they're talking about paycheck to paycheck people who are trying to save for houses, who are you know just trying to get ahead in their own little patch of earth and with their children. Um, so I think it grounds you and I think it's about, a, a, you know, it's a resilience that means when things don't go your way, you don't, you don't really reach out to other, um, you know, government departments or you don't try and blame other people. You think about what you can do to get yourself out of that situation. My extended family are very resourceful that way and they're very good at overcoming setbacks you know, we may end up talking about how I got very sick mm. and how then I was able to kind of apply that philosophy. That sense of resilience and mm. what's within my control, what can I do mm. and what have I got under that. And, again, this might sound very stereotypical and I guess if it's not the pathway then let me know, but sometimes in what you're describing, further education can be quite a big decision and so then going from that upbringing and experience and then into zoology, was that always an option? How did, how did that conversation come about with, mm. with your mother, with your extended family? <laughs> really interestingly. So um, I had had one aunt complete high school, but nobody had gone beyond that. And so I was the second person who completed high school. I, at, at 15, I had three jobs myself. So I was working in a hairdressing salon. I was working at KFC, cooking chicken, and I was delivering junk mail on the weekends. I was busy, very busy. I was way busier doing that than I should have been doing my homework. And, um, I, you know, I actually failed maths, I think, in grade 10, got my only ever E. And so I had to make a decision whether I was going to go down that track and leave high school, which you could do back then at 15, or I was going to do something else. And I thought hard about it and I decided I did want to do something else. I had this passion for animals and I was starting to really appreciate biology and science. And I wanted to merge those two things and kind of formalize that as a career. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I had heard of this thing called zoology, which was the study of animals. Disappointingly, my family at the time thought maybe I was going to work in a zoo. And so I had to correct that. They were disappointed then and they're still disappointed that, I, <laughs> that I've never worked in a zoo. <laughs> Actually, most people who, when you first mention zoology, you know they're thinking about a zoo. Um, it's got the word in it, right? <laughs> it's got the word in it. Where um, else are they employed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I still, like, you know, people's faces still drop when they realise I have never actually worked in a zoo. I don't know what it's like to clean an elephant. I've never hosed out a panda cage. Um, so, you know, mine was more the scientific study of animals and I wanted to save them, which was my ultimate goal. Somehow growing up in this little working class pocket of Southeast Queensland, I had this real sensitivity with animals. I remember my first ever kind of memory of this is being six and watching a documentary about the tuna fishery. Uh, so 82, so this is the late eighties. And, you know, we were starting to realize that a lot of these industries had harm. And if it was a documentary about the tuna industry and how they used to um, catch and kill dolphins. And I just, I broke down. I completely lost it at this one scene of this fisherman carving up this you know, beautiful animal. And then, you know, in the, and then fast forward a couple of years in grade seven, we had to do a talk about a hobby and I was so nerdy. I didn't have like kind of stereotypical hobbies. I didn't play any sport. I, you know, I played video games and read books and collected National Geographic magazines. <laughs> so I decided to do a, a talk on animal rights, which was very bold. So mum slept off to the local RSPCA office because our encyclopedias had very little on animal rights. And I included pictures of, you know, poor pigs separated from their babies and chickens with their beaks cut off and poor rabbits having shampoo dripped into their eyes. And I got up and did this talk in front of my poor year seven class and that, you know, was, they were expecting another talk on cricket uh, or soccer. <laughs> they got something very different. It's a little close to home. <laughs> and and, um, and they, at the end of it, they all just kind of looked at me. <laughs> um, but my teacher stood up and 
you know, I think she was quite, oh, there's something different. At least she's seen something different. And she recommended that I watch Born Free, that amazing film about an animal that's returned to the wild. Um, and so that kind of grew and built and I fell in love with animals and I wanted to save them. And I would highlight all the Attenborough documentaries that were playing that week because we did that back then with TV guides um, and then stay up so I could watch them. And then I realized you could study it and I was so excited. So I finished high school and went to University of Queensland in Brisbane and studied zoology. And it was, in, it was an incredible place to study animals. There, you, when you walk into their kind of building off the main um, main kind of set of buildings in the, in the middle of the campus, there's like a you know eight meter crocodile, which is a replica hanging above you. And there's like jellyfish coming down the walls and there's amazing photos of animals. So I'd found my home and uh, spent the next four years learning everything I could about animals. You, after you studied, you ended up in China working. How did you get work there and what kind of work were you doing at that time? It was not a direct path. So the, thing, the great thing about zoology is you can do loads with it. Once you have this, basically a science degree, right? You've got skills in data analysis, research, writing. I'd done my own research on satin bowerbirds in rainforests for a year sitting under camouflage, looking down telescopes, picking ticks out of, out of my hair. You, you get all kinds of skills. So I got a job with the Australian government in their environment department because I was very naive. I wanted to save all the environment I could, and I thought the best place to do that was from Canberra. I started there and got on their grad program and quickly realised that the environmental policy wasn't where I thought it should be, and that I got a bit cynical about what I could actually do and what could actually be done. Um, Australia then and now was still very focused on growth and exploiting natural resources. And, you know, we were talking about climate change then and no one was really listening at all. And then so I decided to move to the department next door in Canberra, which is the Science Centre, to work out how best to learn how to talk about science and talk about animals to convince people that they needed to save them. I thought I'd go the other way. So I did that for a year and realized that it was really important to talk to people at their level in ways that they wanted to about science and animals. And at the end of that, I thought, let's go apply these skills somewhere really difficult. And a job opened up through the Youth Ambassador Program. So this was an aid program that Australia ran where it sent qualified young people to areas of need all around the world and partnered them with local organizations. And so I ended up at a national park set up to conserve an endangered deer in tropical China, in an island off the coasts, off the southern coast, in between Hong Kong and Vietnam. And that was incredible. <laughs> I had I never thought I would work overseas, but I was really keen to see what it would be like. I crammed as much Mandarin as I could for the three months when I found out I got the job before I left. It didn't help because there they didn't speak Mandarin. <laughs> they spoke oh, another, no. another dialect altogether. <laughs> but it gave me it gave me a, a, a foot in the door. And then, so, yeah, I set myself up in this reserve trying to help them communicate their research and improve their systems for saving this endangered animal. That's how I ended up in China. There's a, you know, thinking there's elements of being a problem solver, being curious, and also choosing not necessarily the easy path, but the curious path. Uh, in, in part of what you're saying. You mentioned before about we might get round to talking about when you had a pivotal moment and uh, got a diagnosis that's pretty kind of tough to hear. Whilst you were in China, you'd had some symptoms, came back to Australia, squeezed in a, a colonoscopy, and when you woke from that, you were told that you had stage three colon cancer. Tell me a little bit about that moment, if you can take me to that moment. Because when you wake up, you're a bit foggy and mm. dizzy. Like, you know, you're not really no there anyway you're not you talk through that conversation yeah it's a it's a hearing news like that um is never easy but it has particular ramifications when you're 28 so i was 28 by this age and i just want to take you back a bit to the life i had because that helps understand the life i was going to have after the colonoscopy. So I was 28. I'd been in China by four, for four years now. 
I'd left the National Park and set up a business helping Chinese scientists talk about their research. It was a very exciting space. This was post-Olympics. Beijing was amazing. There was lots of um, funding for science. There was lots of energy. They were very welcoming of foreigners like me um, who were trying to help, help them. And I'd fallen in love. So I'd met Sana uh, five months before I was diagnosed. It was a summer. It was the, both of, for both of us, it's still the best summer of our lives. Um, we, it was one of those relationships where you just meet them and then, you know, you know. I went into her radio station. She was there as a foreign journalist working for China Radio International. And I went in to do a radio interview about giant pandas because as a zoologist in China and helping Chinese scientists communicate, I attracted firstly zoologists and then mostly, weirdly, giant panda researchers. So I became a bit of an expert on the giant panda. And I went in to talk in English about the giant panda for their national radio station. And Sana was a producer at the radio station and we locked eyes across the room. And I asked her on a date two days later, and then 12 years later, <laughs> here we are. Um, Beautiful. So I go into that colonoscopy with a like a, a, a little business in Beijing, lots of optimism about the future, uh, had just fallen in love. So I was very hopeful about where that was going. But I had been ignoring symptoms inside me for some time. When I look back, probably about six months. And I had very classic bowel cancer symptoms. I was bleeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in pain. I had lost weight. I had terrible night sweats, the kind where you need to change the sheet in the middle of the night. Uh, I would, I fainted sometimes, probably because I was anemic. I would be constipated one day and then have explosive diarrhea the next day and then be constipated. Uh, I didn't have much understanding of what was going on. Did you, you know, put that down to anything in particular or was it more just kind of um, not ignoring but just going, I can just deal with this today and it'll be fine. I put it, I put it down to dodgy dumplings, but, but you can only do that so many times <laughs> once. Before, yeah, once <laughs> before you see the pattern, right? And I was a scientist, so I get patterns. Yeah. Um, but when you Google it, and rightly so, for most young people, blood is hemorrhoids. It's something pretty benign that can be fixed quite easily. I hadn't kind of maybe in my unconscious put all the big pieces together a part of me thought maybe something was wrong but it wasn't going to be major so i squeeze in this colonoscopy this 28 year old who's just fallen in love trying to build a business in another country wakes up the last thing i'd been told before the colonoscopy when i said worst case scenario i think i may have cancer the doctor's like but there's no family history you're 28 like look at you you've never been in hospital i'm not expecting to find cancer And then the first thing I'm told when I wake up is that there's something that looks like a giant cancer. The cancer was so large that he couldn't get the scope through. He had to use a pediatric scope, so a little baby camera. And he showed me pictures of it and it looked looked like the word cancer. You know, it was yucky. Mm. It It was bleeding and there were dark patches. And he had my mum in the room, which is incredible. And I remember waking up, walking into the room and thinking it was weird that mum was there because I was 28 and I didn't need my mum to talk to a doctor about a colonoscopy, particularly a colonoscopy, um, given that it involves your bum. And uh, I I didn't get as far as thinking, oh, something really bad's happened before the conversation started and something really bad happened. So I was numb, effectively, and I didn't realise until the end that I'd been squeezing mum's hand I had lots of questions, but no questions. So I didn't really say much. I was just trying to listen. Mum was really switched on. She asked the important questions. And I didn't have a lot of time to process it because at 28, finding a big tumour like this, the next question becomes, is there more than one tumour? And so the urgency was to find other tumours in my body. And it was a Friday afternoon and the doctor wanted it done then. So he starts ringing hospitals, literally picks up the phone and starts dialing every hospital he can to find a spare CT machine to scan me top to toe to look for more tumors. And that's the first chance I've got where I can leave the room and kind of be me. But I have to call Sana. So my first job is to tell her um, what's just happened. And so I'm out in the car park. Uh, This is the strongest memory from this day. 
Um, I've walked out to the car park for some quiet. I've got mum's mobile phone because mine didn't work in back in Australia. And it's morning Beijing time, mid-morning. She's on her way to work. She was presenting a TV show in China then. I call her. She's in the back of a taxi. It's very busy, peak hour, Beijing. The taxi driver's talking on his phone, so it's, it's noisy. And uh, she picks up, and I, I have to explain to her that I've maybe got, well, not maybe, very likely have a cancer. Um, and she's a, she's a news journalist by trade, so she's okay with this stuff. Mm. And she very quickly goes who, what, when, where, why. So she wanted the detail and she wanted to work out. Who what, do I need to ring <laughs> yeah, now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I was crying. She was crying. Um, I was trying to reassure her. She was trying to reassure me. And she, I'm aware the whole time I'm calling her on the way to work. I'm going to ruin her day. Maybe I'm going to ruin her life. She goes to work. She records the TV show. And then she goes to the airport and gets on the first plane to Melbourne and uh, is there for me. And 12 years later. <laughs> yeah, we're married with a baby. <laughs> Spoiler. Which is, is, yeah, that's right. All ends well. Yeah. You share your story and there are a lot of people that have shared their story from cancer diagnosis and out the other side. But you share your story with a difference and really it's through the lens of what that experience was like as a patient going through treatments, scans, mm. doctor's appointments, conversations. Do you have any sense, and it might be because it's just not even on our radar, prior to this diagnosis, prior to this day, maybe what you thought the experience of a patient was versus the reality of your experience. What do you think it was? Like, do you have a sense of what that was? Was it just not even on the kind of radar versus what the reality was of your experience? That is an, a very good question. And I can answer it rather quickly. I had never been sick. I had never been in hospital. I had never fractured a bone. I had no idea what it was like. And my family were healthy. I was the first one to get cancer in my extended family. Even my older relatives were okay. Um, so I didn't know what it was like to be a patient. I hadn't nursed anybody or had a loved one that had died. My family were all young and healthy. Sana was fine. And so I had no concept of what it was going to be like. And I think that's probably a good thing because it, it made my observations maybe unbiased in that way, biased in other ways for sure, but not biased by that. Hmm. Um, so I was able to come to it um, really fresh, never having spent a single day in a hospital bed to having to spend a lot of days in a hospital bed. What did you notice? So not only through a personal experience, but as you say, you're a scientist, you're seeing patterns, you're observing behaviour, whether it's animals or humans. <laughs> can, there is definitely a crossover. Tell me a little bit about what you observed and I guess what you experienced being the patient. It's hard to talk about this because the I'm really, really, really grateful. So I didn't want to be um, one of those patients and every lived experience is valid. And, and however people want to frame it and the narrative they want to use, I'm all for that. It's not mine to inform theirs and it's not theirs to inform mine. Um, but I was, I'm conflicted still because I'm alive, right? Like the team were amazing. They did the job. The job was to save me. And it was at the top of my list as well. So the speed with which when you're young and you have an aggressive cancer like this, I ended up being staged at stage 3C. So we're just on the cusp of stage four, right? We all know what stage four means. Yeah. Uh, the speed with which I was assessed and triaged and got MRIs and PET scans and started radiation therapy and then chemotherapy and then surgery and then more chemotherapy was incredible from start to finish. Um, my, the bulk of my cancer treatment was over in 12 months. 
and then I had a couple, I had a surgery after that, but the, the most of it was done and it was done relatively quickly when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And it was done with amazing medical knowledge and skills, you know, that they picked the right treatments for me. They knew exactly where to cut. The surgeons did their job. The medical oncologists did their job. When I was um, in hospital recovering from each of the procedures, the nurses did their job. But at, at some point in the care, I was struck with the fact that a lot of people in the system, and it is a system, it's a machine, had forgotten that the cogs in the machine were people. <laughs> they were humans with feelings who were probably exploding internally, but projecting calm or anxiety or fear on the outside. And there were few parts of the system that were designed to check in at those times and maybe even check how that was informing the physical recovery, right? Hmm. So strong focus on physical outcomes, like how many fevers did you have and when did you last have antibiotics and what's your fluid intake? And that stuff was done well, but the, the other stuff sometimes wasn't. The other part I noticed was that it's fine when you're following the trajectory that the system wants you to. So after my big surgery to remove the tumor um, and a few other bits and pieces around that that were contaminated by tumor, which was very scary in itself, I was supposed to be in hospital maybe four or five days. It was a large operation. You know, they, they, they cut from my pubic bone up to my chest. It was open. I had tubes coming out of me. It was a six hour procedure, but even so, you know, the amazing medicine is you can get up and about very quickly and then be out at home within a week. But that I didn't follow that part. I got very sick and I started to recover and then I stopped recovering. And it was at that point that I felt like my journey and what the system expected my journey to be deviated. And it was in that gap that I basically floundered I didn't feel supported physically or psychologically or emotionally. And I was dry retching after every mouthful of food. I, I stopped eating. I had lost 12 kilos. I, my, you know, electrolytes in my blood started to go a little bit off. I was in a shared room. So I'm going through this with strangers. I'm making horrible noises. I'm hearing horrible noises. The, and, and this is fine when you're there four days, you know, this stuff doesn't matter. But by week three and week four, you're in this shared room and I'm going through my trauma and I'm collecting the trauma of mm. people around me. So I'm getting sicker. The doctors aren't sure what's going on. I never know what time they're going to come. <laughs> and that's when I start to realize when everything's going well, you just kind of go along with the machine. You know, the machine's got you. And when things aren't going well, it's it's when you start to realize that maybe the system isn't really designed for you. It's designed for something else and that you become more of a problem and less of a patient. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting quite sick at this stage. And one particular ward round, you know, this group of eight or nine people rock up. I, I don't know eight of them. I know one of them and my surgeon who's always really nice. And they have a little chat about me. I don't understand what they're saying. They're using words I don't know. They're looking at a computer I can't see. I don't know what data they're analyzing. The, the one of the people stops and turns to me and, you know, she says, if you don't start eating, I'm putting a nasogastric tube in you. And it felt very threatening. Um, and I get what she was trying to say. But what it confirmed for me was I was just numbers on a page. And it was almost like I was now being blamed for not healing for not recovering, for, from deviating from the system was my fault. And what that nurse I later learned did not understand was that I had a fear of nasogastric tubes because I'd spent, you know, a couple of weeks in hospital hearing them being inserted. And for your listeners, I, I don't know what, this is just a tube that goes in through the nose, down the back of the throat, into the stomach, and it's to help people eat who can't eat for a whole range of reasons. But listening, them, listening to them go in is awful. It's a gurgly, horrific, gagging mess. And they often have to pull them out and go back in and pull them out and go back in. And and this is all done behind these tiny little hospital curtains, you know, that are supposed to be private. (laughs) It doesn't do nothing to conceal sound or give privacy. And I'd heard a bunch of these. And irrationally, in my sick state, full of fear, I I dreaded this thing. 
because I was waiting for when it was going to have to happen to me. And just, you know, she just indifferently blurts it out in the middle of a ward round. I'm stood over by strangers. I'm feeling like crap. And I think that's when it really hit me that there's a lot about this that isn't working for the person in the hospital bed. It's designed for other people or other factors. And I think that came about because one, like you said, I didn't go in thinking what a patient was. So I was going in clean, but I'd gone in as a zoologist thinking about animals in their habitat, right? I think about ecosystems and, and where people live and what affects them. Cause I'm thinking about that with animals. And I just realized that this wasn't a good habitat. <laughs> this, this isn't nice. If you were designing something for someone to recover in, you would never design a hospital. Hospitals are hostile. That's what I realized. It felt like a hospital, hostile environment. And then I started to get hostile attitudes. And I wasn't surprised because the place is hostile. Mm. So if the place is hostile and kind people inhabit it, they become hostile. The system, the the platform, the environment, yeah. the, what we need to, the measures that we kind of need to tick off, because even that statement is just, really saying we need to get some nutrition into you. <laughs> mm. But it was it, it became another task or another to-do list on a nursing list, mm. uh, yeah. which is the system, not the individual. So it's really interesting mm. that, you know, seeing it through that lens. Mm. Uh, and I probably haven't put that sense of um, the impact of other people's experience mm. and how strong that is on a recovery in, you know, environment, mm. not only your experience, but you do by, by nature, we're human nature, we're picking up on what people are feeling and that's really contagious in any environment. Like Absolutely. Was, if someone's agitated at an airport lounge, you, yep, you can within feel it. seconds you can see everyone else yep. getting agitated and looking at their watch. So that's contagious in any environment mm. by, by human nature and human behaviour. Yep. So in a hospital environment when there is no other stimuli, there's no other external things, mm. no other ways that you can kind of get away from it, I imagine that's mm. really amplified. So there's one thing to to sit in that experience, to to have an environment and to start to see, oh, okay, what's going on for me? Mm. Not only experience it, but almost see it through that scientific lens. It's another thing to go, what can I do to impact this? And that decision, and you actually made a pretty ultimate decision to train and become a doctor. Many people who have a cancer diagnosis and go through treatment and maybe have a similar experience don't end up there. <laughs> I acknowledge it's weird. I acknowledge that. Yeah, definitely. Talk and, to me about that, that decision. Yep. I always feel bad too because I feel like saying it's okay to have cancer and go back to your old job. That is that is okay. Zoologists <laughs> would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, I have lots of friends that you know with cancer that did that. So, and actually that's what I tried to do. I, I got spat out of the system and, you know, I talk about that, the, the paths deviating. So the unwell and the system that expects you to get well, then I realized there's a second gap and that's once you're done, once you're out and you don't have this amazing hospital with all its services that you can just walk into and access, you're on your own. And I had a pretty onerous checkup system, you know, every 12 weeks at my age, they want to see you and do blood tests. They want to do CT scans every six months. They want a colonoscopy every year. They're really paranoid about cancer coming back. So I'm out and I try to go back to work and I went back too early. And the reason I did that was because I had no money. <laughs> so when you get sick, when you're young, um, you don't have a lot of savings. I had lost my business in China. I wasn't making money from it back then anyway. I had no income insurance. I didn't have health insurance. Accessing Centrelink was a nightmare. Um, and so Sana and I were on our own and I needed to get back on my feet. So I'm 29. I go back to work and it's fine. It's a great distraction. It feels nice to be normal, quote unquote, again. Mm. But something shifted in me. So at about 10, 11 months, I start to get a bit irritated with work. And I think it's the work. So I change and I end up at an uh, animal charity of my dreams back close to, you know, close to the conservation core. And the same thing happens, you know, after about six, seven, eight months, I start to get irritated again, start to get a bit down. So I decide I'm going to take a year off and just think I'm going to feel 
what cancer did to me and I'm going to think about what it did to me. And my body had changed for sure. Long, big scars, my toes and my hands still tingle from chemotherapy. My colon is a mess. Um, I still have the, uh, no, I had lost the stoma by then. So I had a bag for a year, but it mm-hmm. ended up being reversed, but I was still getting to know my bum again. So things were different, but I hadn't appreciated how different they were inside. And I'm reflecting on what I want to do. And I've started to volunteer with cancer charities by now, um, helping information for patients get improved, sitting on panels. I talked at a couple of fundraiser events because I'm trying to help and give. Um, But I realized that if the things I want to do are quite big and I I need to get into that machine, I don't want to hang around on the outside. Now you can go into the machine lots of different ways. I could have become a nurse I could have become a physio or a social worker or a psychologist. But what I realized when I was in hospital was that the place, while it was designed not for patients, it was designed for someone else. It seemed to be designed for doctors. It, got, it, kind of, it was kind of built around them. Hmm. And they're the ones that call the shots. They're the ones that determine what happens when and where. So I decided and to And ultimately, enter- they have to be the ones that perform. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And... and it's important to realize hospitals are, that's their workplace, mm. right? That's their office. We're just visiting. And so I wanted to get into that office and I wanted to be one of those people calling the shots. So I had never had dreams of becoming a doctor. And it wasn't until this time had passed and I realized that the way to do it was to become one. So I Googled it randomly, like how to become a doctor. And it happened to be the day before the admission test closed. So I just submitted, I was like, I'm going to do the test. I paid the money. It was way too much. And then I started studying. So I did that for a couple of months, sat it and got in. Didn't expect to get in. I was 32 when I started medical school. So I'm much older than most of my colleagues. And uh, medical school was a wild ride. <laughs> and now I'm a doctor working uh, you know, in the public health system. What sort of impact, because I know one of the things bringing that kind of sense of why into it, coming into this workplace, this office, and wanting to advocate might be the right word or the wrong word, but to really kind of think about the patient experience. What are you doing differently or how are you facing that, seeing that from, from the side that you are now on? tough question so the reason that's tough is because when i went to med school i realized that there was a whole other world of problems i hadn't even thought of and that was how doctors are taught the patient is largely absent from this system it is a doctor-led strictly hierarchical sometimes hazardous let's put it out there system to train in And I was quite shocked. And then I started to realize I'm not at all surprised now at the kinds of things I see. And the, you know, the, the patient leaving the consultation cross because the doctor quote, didn't listen or not having, having their pain discounted or ignoring what they'd found on the internet or not making eye contact. Right. Like these things keep people have these common complaints about doctors and I understood it. It's because it's how how they're taught how they're selected. And so then my mission became broader. It became, I just don't want to fix things for patients because I can't unless I fix things for doctors because both sides of the patient-doctor relationship are equally important. And it's a weird kind of mutualism, isn't it? Mm. They're dependent on each other. There's a power difference for sure. One person is sick usually, and one person has all the knowledge usually, but there's a mutualism. And if one side is happy, with that equation, you're more likely to have both sides be happy with that equation. So I went to med school and realized there was much more to do. And then I start working as a junior doctor and I'm like, oh, my world gets imploded again. I'm like, this system has problems. It's not just, <laughs> it's not just the physical layout of the ward. It's how doctors talk to each other at hospital. And it's how nurses and doctors talk to each other. And it's how doctors are trained because med school is just the first step in the long path to becoming an independent doctor. But the difference with me is I went to medical school sick. I learned about disease as someone that had disease. 
So I'm learning things from textbooks alongside everyone else, but I'm connecting them to my experience and I'm feeling them, right? I know what it's like to lay powerless in that hospital bed, to have cannula after cannula inserted, to have people say to you that you need an azogastric tube if you don't start eating. I can feel all of that. And so as a doctor, I didn't stop magically feeling that. I, you know, I... I think I walk into hospital now as a patient wearing a stethoscope. I come here to work as someone who was sick and still has checkups. I'm still a patient. And so I can't ignore that. And it informs my, it informs my work on a daily basis, but, and this is why your question is a tough one. It's really hard to hold on to. The system does not incentivize that kind of kindness and that kind of listening and that kind of compassion. Medical school certainly didn't. That's first of all, it's largely absent from our teaching. And then it's largely absent from our exams. And then when you get out into the real world, it's largely absent from your workplace culture and the systems that are there to help doctors perform their job on the wards. So I struggle with that. I'll be very honest with you and your listeners. It's a conflict. Because to be the kind of doctor I want to be means I probably would never leave the hospital because there's so much to do if you do it the right way. If you take that extra time with patients and their families, if you sit down with your colleagues and have proper respectful discussions, everything takes longer. But the system is built for quick and dirty. So I do what I can. And I also need to think about the cost of doing that in terms of losing other parts of my life. So my time with my son, who's two, or dinner with Sana. It's a balance. I don't have it right. Some weeks my family wins. Some weeks the patients win. Some weeks the system wins. Mm -hmm. But I approach, I try to approach every single engagement with colleagues and with patients as someone who 100% understands what it's like to be sick. Uh, there's a part of me going, I think you need about five lifetimes because I think it's a really important <laughs> conversation to dive into. I want to ask you two questions. They One is going to be from the patient perspective because partly I go by nature, I'm really interested in the practical, what might be some kind of tools mm. to take forward. And then the second question will be from the uh, say doctor but medical professional because uh, mm. I think allied health professions really fall into that category as well. So if we go from a patient perspective, and again, I'm going to kind of blanket this, but I look at it through the lens of even generationally. So my, my parents, my husband's parents almost come from a generation of whatever the medical profession tells me I will do and Mm. I will follow them. And if I go and have an appointment with a surgeon and they tell me I need surgery, I will Mm. do that. Mm. And I, Uh, I probably come from that generation of actually when you talk to a surgeon, that's their tool, of Mm, course. (laughs) Maybe there's somewhere else that we can talk to and know that that's an option, but there's somewhere else. So practically patients coming into that experience, that opportunity, and I think the other difference in the generations is Google as opposed to encyclopedia, and that's not always helpful. But we can have more information at our fingertips than we've Mm. ever had before. We can have access to people that have been through different Mm. similar um, diagnosis, similar, so we can hear different stories and some of that's useful and some of that is not. Mm. So practically in 60 seconds or less, (laughs) (laughs) a little bit longer, but what is it that the patient could do to step into these conversations, to advocate for themselves or their family members could do on their behalf, mm. you say, someone who's not feeling great. And that's certainly something, certainly a role I've played with my parents at times is kind of being that advocate. That's great. Mm. How about we ask this question and where else could we go and talk to someone else about mm-hmm. that? Or let's let's understand why they might be suggesting that that is mm-hmm. the case and what's sitting behind that. What tools have you got? Thanks. So I 100% agree. Dr. Google is actually our friend and it's our friend because it starts a conversation. I also don't think, I think the role of the doctor as the guardian of knowledge is, and it's antiquated. It's moved on. 
And now in the information age, if we hold on to that as the one thing that separates us from patients, we are doomed to be replaced by robots. So patients, here's what I say to patients, always take someone because there is safety in numbers. <laughs> always have someone because what you're trying to do is you're walking into a room where there is an enormous power gulf and you're going to be worried and your brain isn't going to be working properly. So you should always take someone and the noisier that person is, the better, <laughs> right? That doctor may get upset by that, but you're going to get better input and you're going to feel better at the end of the consult. Take someone. Always search things online. I think it doesn't harm you. If you've got a doctor's appointment, you know where this is going. It's not just searching at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night down a spiral. You're going to go to a doctor. So you can take what you learn to a doctor and get them to reinterpret it for you. Print things out if you need to, because you know doctors still use facts. So you need to print out a couple of web pages that you found and take them with you. I would at that stage, I always say take a notepad and pen. Both you and the support worker should have a notepad and pen. And you should write down your questions before the consult. Because again, you're going to be bamboozled. Medicine is 90% art and 10% science. Part of that art is building up the expert. And they're going to say things and they're going to come at things in a completely different way because we speak another language. And so you can forget how to think in your basic questions that you had because you can feel like they're not appropriate or this doctor seems very smart or I don't want to sound silly. Or you'll try and make up for that power balance by you know, putting your anxieties away and trying to sound strong and confident. Um, I think they're all mistakes. So you should take someone, you should take a pen and paper, you should have searched online before you go and you should write your questions down before you go. Then get a second opinion. I always say this, if a doctor is offended by you getting a second opinion, they're probably not going to be a good doctor for you. I got a second opinion when I was diagnosed with cancer and one of my doctors made me feel, feel like an asshole for it, <laughs> but it, it saved my life. Getting that second opinion literally saved my life. We don't have time to go into that now, but it did. And so get a second opinion. Patients have to chip away at the information and the power golf. And they're just some simple things they can do in, in order to help that. That's the very practical. The big picture is that patients come into that meeting already informed and having understood the situation of the doctor better. And that's why I wrote the book, right? I'm trying to help patients and doctors better understand each other so they know where they're coming from and so they can have a mutual conversation. I think it's really important that patients understand the person sitting behind the desk is a person. Yeah. They are a person. They have anxieties and worries and they've got stuff going on. They might've skipped lunch. Their child might've been very difficult that morning. They might have a sick mother in hospital. So just acknowledging the humanity and not being afraid to be human in that interaction. Which means, you know, I see that as partnership then, but yeah, understand, step into that conversation. I think they're really practical tools. Bring someone, bring a pen and paper, do the research, and even just pausing for that one extra question, even if it feels ridiculous, but where a doctor's ready to pack up and go, we'll mm. often see that as a signal, but I often think just pause one yep. longer you never know, and often there'll be something yep. that'll come from that. So if I flip now to the doctor's side or medical professional, they are they have a lot going on. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a huge job, long hours, often shift work, uh, often a lot of other things kind of happening. The work environments are really, really tough. You're going from one scenario to the next very, very quickly, often mm. with very limited transition between the two. Mm. And it is a profession where burnout is very, very high. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that that detachment can be a protective kind of mechanism mm. for medical professionals. And, and I think you touched on it before where you're kind of going, look, I figure it out. Some days it's this, some days it's that, and some days it's the system and you just turn up the next day. <laughs> What, uh, what are you learning in that that helps you to keep the patient kind of front of mind whilst also being able to turn up clear-minded and keen on the work that you do, managing your own energy along the way? So the, I think if I have one point, I know you want, you want me to rush here, but I'll, I'll try and get this out. The thing is that routine 
kills empathy and it kills connection because it's our job. And so you're right, you're going to bounce from one situation to another. And you might have done that 20 times that day, or you might have had the same conversation six times or ask the same, we ask the same questions of every patient every day. Your boring is not boring for this person. And I like, I love your advice about stopping and pausing. I do it often between patients and I don't think doctors do it enough. We should stop. We should breathe and reset ourselves for the new encounter because there's going to be a new energy and there's going to be a new personality and there's going to be a new set of fears and anxieties coming in. And there's going to be new education and new health, health literacy. And it's important that we match and meet that patient where they want to be. So I say, I, I, you know, my advice to colleagues and myself is um, remember that your routine is not their routine and that your boring is not their boring. And I try and remember that I might forget this conversation. This person may remember this conversation for years. It is very important. The words that come out of my mouth and the way I look and the way I make this person feel here matter. I think that's so important i'm kind of smiling to myself and i know this is a stretch as a metaphor but any aussies listening will know daryl braithwaite and know him as the horses and i've seen him in concert and he goes i know that's the song you want but i've got these other songs (laughs) 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 but you have to sing it and play it like it's the first time these people have kind of heard it and i love that sense of your routine is not routine Mm -hmm. for the person that you are in front of so arrive be here and be present for that moment. I think that's really powerful. So you have written a book called The Patient Doctor to start this conversation, spark this conversation even further. What is your hope from this book? It's it's that patients and doctors better understand each other because I think that the moment the patient-doctor relationship and patient-healthcare worker, let's put it all out there, is strained and it's been increasingly strained by the system and the way the system has been designed. And I want patients and doctors to better understand each other because from that comes an alliance that will force the system to change. It will never change while doctors and patients aren't on the same page, in the same room, at the same table. It won't. You've got one group asking for one thing and one group asking for another thing. You need both groups asking for the same thing. They might ask for it in different ways, but they both want the same outcome. And then the system will have to change because it can't resist both parts of the equation being unhappy. It it actually needs, it actually is built on at the moment, one side at one time not being happy, patients not getting the care they want, doctors, nurses, social workers leaving because of moral injury or burnout. If both sides know that they can get better and that the system is capable of delivering better and they ask it together, maybe I'm optimistic, but that's the best chance we have of getting it to change. And it's going to have to. There's going to, there's the the outcomes that's available for everyone, for for patients, for families and for, for health professionals is is really powerful. So important, critical conversation to be leaning into. And I'm excited for the three other lifetimes that you've got that will actually (laughs) make an impact on that. One's enough, one's enough. (laughs) Ben, I've loved this conversation. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. If you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? It just means growing to me. Uh, I don't think it has to be anything. And I don't like the hero label. And my surname is Bravery, but I honestly am not brave. I don't think you need to have got cancer to become a doctor to be someone. I think just trying to be better and being kind while you're trying to be better, to me, that's a standout. That's all That's all you should be trying to do. Kindness, improve, improve things for others. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much for your time. I've, I've loved this conversation, Ben. Thank you so much, me too. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.